0: Uh, But he was our worst school bully. He was nasty, he was disruptive, and he was violent, and he went out of his way to make my life miserable. I was afraid of him. I was resentful of him. I really hated him. And a few years later, after we would left school, I found out that he'd been convicted and put in prison for burglary with aggravated assault. And I was like, good. What a nasty piece of work, got exactly what it deserved. Then it wasn't until our 30-year reunion, I think it was, which shows how old I am, uh, but our 30-year school reunion, and I met him again. I remember walking in the room and seeing him, and, and all those thoughts of fear and resentment and the hate came back. I thought, what's he doing here? I, I, surely everybody hated him. You know, why, why is he coming? But as the evening went on, I actually got around to talking to him. Probably thinking I might get a bit of payback, I don't know. But it turns out while he was in prison, he'd found God and become a Christian. And and, and after, after getting out, he'd got married, he'd, got, he'd turned his life around, he'd started an own bu- his own business, he'd become a florist, of all things. I know, and... and I told him that I was really overjoyed, actually, that he'd found Jesus and he was getting his life together. But if I'm honest, I thought, he doesn't deserve that. (laughs) There's some deep-seated resentment in me that couldn't see the past the person he'd become. I just saw the nasty little kid. But the reason I'm telling you this is that exactly, really, what the Parable of Jonah is all about. The story of Jonah in the Old Testament is, in my opinion, one of the most wonderful and yet most misunderstood books in the Bible. Everyone thinks I think it's just a it's a big fish story, isn't it? But um, it was never really intended to describe a historical event. It doesn't really tell us about a real person, even though somebody called Jonah did exist, or well, for that matter. Even though Nineveh did exist, it didn't really tell us about a real city. Certainly, the city under question, it didn't take three days to walk across it. And much to people's disappointment, it's not even about a real whale. Sorry. But it it struggles to tell us something about God and our anger. And like any well-crafted parable, it's full of irony and humour and dramatic action. Uh, and it's set in the time uh, when Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, uh, which is just to the northwest, just trying to think, yes, that's, no, northeast, sorry, yeah, <laughs> northeast of, uh, of Israel. And the Assyrians, they were the local bullies. Uh, they were incredibly brutal, uh, and they were very rich, And they were rich because they invaded their neighbouring countries and they brutally slaughtered people. They sold all their land and all their wealth uh, and enslaved some of the people and the rest went into exile. And a few years after the setting of this story, this is exactly what the Assyrians did to the uh, Israelites and then to Judah. And it was written at a time when, actually written at a time, which is not actually the setting, but it was written at a time when the remnants of the Hebrew people had returned and reclaimed their land. And a time when Babylon and Mede, which were around Assyria, they'd done to Assyria what Assyria had done to everybody else. So you can imagine, suddenly, refugees from Assyria were heading into Israel and Judah. And of course, the Jewish people didn't want them they absolutely detested the Assyrians with a deep-seated resentment and hatred. So the person who sat down to write Jonah lived amongst this ragtag bunch of survivors who kept themselves alive in large part by feeding themselves on how much they hated the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and just about anybody who didn't look or sound Jewish. And when people are so afraid and their hatred is justified, and when they know for a fact that their bloodthirsty prayers are heard by God, then it's very, very awkward to offer an alternative opinion. And some when, sometimes when people are angry, it's best, the, the best way to approach it is with a little bit of slapstick humour. Hence, we have this wonderful story. It's a, it's a wonderful satire story. Um, it's, if it was in set in the modern day, it'd probably be, have I got news for you, or mock the week. Uh, but anyway, we left the story a couple of weeks ago, when Jonah, having run away from God, and his task of preaching against the city of Nineveh, the people he hated, and he ended up nearly drowned and languishing in the belly of a big fish, which is when he suddenly starts to pray. And who wouldn't in that situation? But on the face of it, Jonah is full of repentance. If you read this psalm or prayer, he's, he's, he's full of repentance. But actually, if you read the prayer carefully, he doesn't actually repent at all. Uh, he sort of blames God a bit, and then he blames sort of the pagans. And the first series of, of this story would have hear the words and know that most of them are actually just nicked from other psalms. He's like picked bits of other psalms and put it in a prayer. And it's just a bit of flowery language, dispersed with a little bit of pagan hatred, even those pagan sailors had just tried to save him. And it's the kind of prayer that is a bit of a self-righteous, self-centred, and it's the kind of, that kind of person would pray it. And it's a bit reminiscent of Jesus's parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, when the Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like these other men, these swindlers and evildoers and adulterers, and even this tax collector. But the tax collector, stands at the back saying, God have mercy, mercy on me, a sinner. So the Pharisees are very much what Jonah, Jonah's prayer is. In fact, It's so sickeningly self-righteous that even the fish pukes him up on the shore. (laughs) And this is when we get to chapter three, where Jonah finally relents and obeys God. I didn't say repent, he relents. And it starts pretty much as chapter one started. God says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim the message I will give to you. Incidentally, in Aramaic, this is amusing in itself. The name Nineveh means the place of the fish. So Jonah goes from the belly of one fish into the belly of another. Big fish. It's a bit of a play on words, which is hard to read in English, but there we go. So Jonah walks into the middle of this huge monstrous city and delivers a very short and pretty sad attempt at a sermon. He basically preaches a sermon in which he says, you're all going to die And it's going to happen pretty soon. And against all credible odds, they actually believe him. I've never tried preaching that sermon. I don't think it would go down that well. But this isn't a parable, not a description of history. So he walks into the middle of the city and says, God really hates you lot, and you're going to die a bloody horrible death. And the entire city repents. And the storyteller says that not only did the people repent... And the king repented, but for goodness sakes, the, the cattle repented. Even the cattle are wearing sackcloth and ashes. This is the best preacher in history. It's, it's, that's part of the irony, because Jonah didn't actually want to be a good preacher. He, just wanted to, he didn't want them to repent. He just wanted to vent his spleen. He wanted to be able to tell them, you've all messed up one too many times and you're about to get it in the neck. Uh, because Jonah wants them to be destroyed. He really does. Jonah wants God to get into the destroying evil business. Because if God won't do that, what's God good for in the first place? God won't act against injustice. Then God's just not getting involved. If God doesn't become enraged by mass destruction, you know, doesn't God want to help wipe out Nineveh and every city that's like it for that matter? And then God does something which in Jonah's eyes is absolutely unforgivable. God sees the repentance of Nineveh and he's stirred by their sorrow and he relents and he doesn't destroy them after all. And as you move into chapter four next week you'll find this is when Jonah really gets his mad up. It's quite easy to see the contemporary relevance I think of Jonah today. In the, these days of Brexit and Trump's America and the, the, ri- the rise of the hard right in the world again, resentment and anger are still a controlling factor in politics and in society. While I was researching the sermon for today, I typed in anger and resentment into Google. And the first hit what I got was from Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's really interesting what they say about anger and resentment. They say that anger is a dubious luxury. And it's a luxury because it's an emotion that some people can revel in. But recovering alcoholics know it's a luxury they can't afford. If they get angry, it won't be long before they get drunk. And I think it's a, a dubious luxury for even people who aren't alcoholics because you're not really going to get much out of it. Anger doesn't seem to make people very smart, does it? It doesn't make people spiritual, doesn't make them compassionate or loving, and a whole lot of the time, it makes them do something excessively destructive, oftentimes self-destructive. The Buddha says that the fire that you kindle against your enemy burns you. And some of the Christian desert fathers were known to say that the smoke of the fire you set against your enemy fills your own eyes and nostrils, which I think is wonderful poetic language. But it's very difficult to act in anger and not end up punishing yourself. That's what they're saying. And the wisdom of AA is it's usually when I'm angry, it usually means there's something wrong with me the big book of AA, uh, calls anger and resentment a poison. And I think it may well be. But I get where Jonah is coming from. Assyria did terrible things in his day, just as the ISIS terrorists do terrible things today, and for exactly the same reason. They're angry at the the West for invading their country, bombing innocent civilians and those in power. And they want everybody else to hurt as well. And I can in some small way sympathise with that. If you think about my friend Stacey. But they see it as an injustice. And why shouldn't God smite his enemies? Even if I get angry with God for not destroying them. God's grace is offensive to us. It's offensive to our minds and our emotions. God loves and forgives people that we don't want to. Even people from ISIS he loves, and I find that really difficult. But we do well to remember that we are not gods. You know, it seems like life owes us a bit of comfort, doesn't it? You know the routine. You can get angry illegal immigrants for taking our jobs and afraid you're losing your country. You can get angry at Muslims for raising terrorists have no remorse for other people. You get angry at LGBT people for expecting the same rights as straight people. It's not that Jonah and his people did not have a reason to be angry. It's that they also had a lot of reason to get over it. The message of Jonah to the people who first read it was their captivity in Babylon was over. It was time for them to stop hating. It was time for them to accept the interracial marriages among them except the mixed-blood Jews, the Jews who spoke other languages or had family members that were even of another religion. You know, in the past, we've gone to war with America and we've gone to war with France, we've gone to war with Germany, and all of which are now close allies and trading partners. Well, maybe with the exception of France, but... I still like the cheese and wine, no... A Joking aside, it's possible for old enemies to become allies. It's possible to find a way round anger and move towards something that is much more healthy. Not out of fear, but out of courage. Because the root of anger is almost always fear. You don't have to move towards peace because you're ignorant and naive but because you have a powerful faith. the question the Bible poses to us is to wonder if we do well to be angry. The book of Jonah asks us to remember how compassionate God is and asks us to see how silly we look when we we can't see that our bloodlust is not echoed by God. If I could wish one thing for my nation today, it would be just this. I wish my people would stop being afraid. Amen.